All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Jeff Huggins. I'm with the Applications Project Manager with the Cooling Group, and today we're going to continue our series on the Heat Exchanger Week with uh, session number two, Heat Exchanger Design. Uh, just for your own information, yesterday, uh, Don covered basic heat transfer fundamentals, and we're going to try and build on some of that today. Uh, like I said, we're going to go over the heat, heat exchanger design characteristics, uh, impact of operating outside of uh, design conditions, and then we'll have the uh, the rest of the week with the programs on uh, the, the the cooling program selection practice. Uh, Thursday, water the monitoring equipment, and then Friday we'll have uh, hexaval. So it should be a, a real good, real week, uh, very informative, and uh, you'll. Uh, be able to uh, talk to a lot of other uh, presenters as we go through this through the week. So again, we're going to talk about uh, heat exchangers, and this is this is going to be very very simple. It's you know one question, three page solution. That's the way it works with heat exchangers. So I want y'all to buckle in, and we're going to go ahead and uh, get started with this because uh, hopefully we will finish in an hour. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to cover these three main topics today. Types of heat exchangers. Um, heat exchanger preventive maintenance. And then the effects of uh, operating uh, heat exchangers outside of design specifications. Uh, these these three topics should give you a, a good uh, base of information on heat exchangers so that when you go out to uh, facilities and you look at, uh, at uh, the different units inside a plant, uh, you'll be able to recognize uh, the types of heat exchangers and then be able to talk to them about uh, how the operations uh, of those units should be uh, done from a water treatment standpoint. So the first section we're going to talk about uh, is the types of heat exchangers. Uh, basically, what that, that is, that person right there is building a, a really, rather nice looking shell and tube uh, heat exchanger. Um, the different heat exchanger types that we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to talk about the shell and tube heat exchangers. That's the uh, heat exchanger you're going to see most in the uh, uh, chemical processing and petrochemical areas is the shell and tube heat exchanger. Um, it's probably 90% of, of all the heat exchangers out there and, and does the uh, <clears throat> the workhorse is the workhorse of the industry. Uh, the second is plate frame heat exchangers. These are a little different in how they operate and how they uh, are designed. Uh, very unique and uh, very efficient, and we're seeing more and more of them uh, in, in in our plants. Uh, <clears throat> we're also going to go into two that you you might see around, but they're not as common. Uh, the first one is a spiral heat exchanger. Uh, they're very unique. They're very compact, but they have some disadvantages. And then the last one is uh, tube and tube heat exchangers. Uh, these are 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 very, very simple designed heat exchangers. Uh, they're actually modular. You can add 
sections to them as you go if you want to increase your 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 cooling capacity. Uh, I'm starting to see these more and more. I was just at a plant in uh, Monongahela, Pennsylvania, where they had a, a very large one of these. Uh, it was probably 60, 70 feet long and 25 feet high. So we'll go over those as well. So on shell and tube heat exchangers, uh, what you're going to look at when you go to a facility is you're going to try and find out what type of shell and tube it is. Uh, Basically, is it a shell side cooling where the cooling water is outside of the tubes or whether it's a tube side cooling where the, where the water flow is actually running through the tubes and the process flow is on the shell side. Uh, that is basic di uh, division between the two types that you'll see out there. Shell and tube heat exchangers. This is a basic. Uh, uh, drawing of, of the internal and external components of these heat exchangers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, different things you'll notice is that uh, on the on the tube side, this is a single pass unit. It's just showing you where the water is coming in on the very left hand side of the heat exchanger and then and then going out on the right hand side. Uh, so this is a single pass. The water is just making one pass down that unit. You can have two pass where the inlet and outlet are on the same side. Uh, you can have three pass. You can have four, five, six pass and somebody even told me and I don't know if it's true or not that there are some that are eight pass. Uh, I haven't seen an eight pass, but that would be pretty, uh, pretty unusual. Uh, so one of the things so we'll look here. You can see where you have the inlet. You have your tubes that run down and your outlet on the ends of these this unit you have uh, water boxes uh, some people will call these marine ends because they're very typical in <clears throat> in shipping applications uh, the benefits of the marine ends or the water boxes is that the uh, the plant does not have to pull uh, pipe flanges to get in to look at the tube section they just have to pull the uh, dollar plate off the end and then uh, the uh, the tubes are, are right there for them to take a look at without ever having to take off any piping. Uh, a lot of this heat exchangers will, will have this. Uh, if you ever deal with centrifugal chillers, which uh, you might in your career, uh, a lot of the centrifugal chillers do not have the Marines ends. The, they'll have a, a bell cover and that will the piping is connected directly to there. So what happens is they have to pull uh, a section of piping on the inlet and outlet to go ahead and get that pellet cover off to uh, inspect those units. Uh, on the shell side, you can see here where the on the shell side inlet is on the top right and the water flows through the shell around the tubes. This one here is showing also the baffle plates. What we don't want is you won't don't want that the 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 fluid to just have a straight pass from the inlet to the outlet. You want to get as much contact time as possible. So they put baffles in these heat exchangers to redirect that water flow to give you a longer amount of contact time and a better amount of flow to uh, keep everything moving through that heat exchanger and make it more efficient. Uh, these baffle plates 
Uh, some of them are horizontal, some of them are vertical, depending on which heat exchangers you have. And uh, they, like I said, they redirect that flow. Uh, the issue that you have with uh, a lot of these uh, heat exchanger plates that have the water flow running up and down is when it makes that 180 degree turn there at the bottom, you'll end up dropping out solids on the bottom uh, next to these, some of these baffle plates. And that slow solids can build up. Uh, then you have uh, under deposit corrosion. They can be a, a breeding ground for microbiological issues. So this is some of the things that we worry about when we have shell side cooling. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to show some people, these are some of the newer type baffles that they've come out with for these heat exchangers. Uh, it's called a helical baffle. Uh, basically, what it is is instead of having individual plates that are redirecting the flow, this is a, a, a single unit that is perforated for the tubes to go through, but it's, it's like basically looks like a spring. And what it does is it keeps that water flowing in that in a constant circular pattern all the way down the heat exchanger and it eliminates probably about 95% of the dead spots in a heat exchanger on the, on the uh, shell side where you can have uh, uh, sludge and dirt and deposits uh, accumulating and, and then causing corrosion issues. So this is a very uh, nice looking looking heat exchanger that they've, they've developed and uh, they're a little bit more expensive, but I think in the long run they're going to start taking over. Here are some examples of some shell and tube heat exchangers. Uh, the bottom picture here is typical what you'll find in uh, a chemical plant or petrochemical plant. Um, you can see here that this one is, uh, the cooling is actually on the uh, tube side. Uh, the inlet and outlet are on the right-hand side of the heat exchanger, and the process inlet and outlet are on the top and bottom of the center. So this would be an example of tube side cooling. On the upper left is a surface condenser for a power plant. And this would be an example of also of, of tube side cooling where you have steam going in and then condensing and, and leaving the uh, surface condenser. So this is another example of tube side cooling. Uh, the, the, the picture here on the right uh, I actually don't know what cooling, if it's tube side or shell side, but I just thought, my God, that's one of the biggest heat exchangers I've ever seen. So I'm going to show you guys the difference in sizes you can see on these units. Other types of, of uh, sh uh, shell and tube heat exchangers, and some of the most difficult to treat are the smallest ones. Oil coolers, uh, such as for air compressors or lube oil coolers for uh, facilities that require lube oils for their for their process. Uh, these heat exchangers are usually very small. I mean, usually you can pick up the heat exchanger. One person could pick up the heat exchanger on a lot of these, and they end up having uh, quarter-inch tubes uh, in a lot of instances. And these small passages on these tubes are notorious for fouling and causing problems. Uh, the other thing with oil coolers is oil needs to be at a certain temperature. If it gets too cold, it becomes too viscous 
and they start having issues with it. So a lot of times what you'll see on these type of heat exchangers is you will see people put throttling valves on the outflow from these heat exchangers. And during the winter time, because the water's colder, they'll start throttling the water flow through that heat exchanger. And when that happens, you increase the residence time uh, of that water in that uh, heat exchanger. And as you know from being on the on the uh, class yesterday, uh, and Don talked about uh, having excessive amount of time <laughs> inside the heat exchanger itself is something that uh, can lead to uh, fouling of these units. So we try and uh, have our customers avoid uh, throttling cooling water flow whenever possible. Uh, it just leads to, to more and more trouble down the road. Uh, here's a, we, I showed you that picture of that surface condenser. Here's a uh, drawing, uh, cutout view of, the, of, of a surface condenser. You can see where the steam comes in the top of the unit, condensate out the bottom, and then cooling water flow on this one is two pass, uh, and it's providing the cooling to uh, condense that steam. Uh, Don talked about sensible and latent heat. Uh, this would be an example of uh, of latent heat where you're actually causing that steam to collapse and condense into uh, a liquid. Uh, on a surface condenser, the purpose of it is to condense that that steam, and at the at that unit when that you collapse collapse that steam, you develop a vacuum in that uh, surface condenser, and the better the vacuum that you can pull the more steam will get pulled into the unit, which means more steam is being pulled through the turbine as well, so you're producing more electricity. So if for some reason this surface condenser were to get fouled and it would not be able to cool as well as it should, uh, megawatt production would drop off, so their cost per, per megawatt would increase dramatically. So this is what we, uh, we want to look at when we look at a surface condenser. Um, there's you know specific courses on exactly how to uh, you know troubleshoot and look at surface condensers, but I wanted to bring this up here. Uh, this is an evaporative condenser. Basically, it's it's a shell and tube heat exchanger, but the shell side is actually more of a cooling tower. Um, the tube is a bank of tubes that runs through the cooling tower itself and water is sprayed down on it. So you, not only do you get sensible heat loss from the water that makes it down into the basin of the, of the evaporative condenser, but you also have latent heat loss when you have a direct evaporation of that water out the, out the top. So these units are, are used a lot in, in ammonia refrigeration. Uh, they're also used for glycol systems where uh, customers are worried about uh, the freezing of their systems during the winter time, so they'll uh, run glycol through uh, their process loop, which will go inside and cool whatever material they have uh, inside the plant. Uh, the big thing about these is on the picture on the right, you can see that the, the, the piping goes up to the very top section. That entire top section is that bank of tubes, and that bank of tubes I'm sorry, not the top section, the, the next to the top section, you can see the inlet and outlet for the process side. 
that's that second section is all tubes. And they'll be anywhere. They can be anywhere from three quarter of an inch to maybe an inch and a half in diameter. And there'll be a bank of them. They might be 20, 30 rows high and, you know, 40 tubes wide. And they can be, you know, 20, 30 feet long. And one of the issues with these type of uh, this type of exchange is these tubes can if they get fouled, there's no way to really clean them because once you get foulance on the inside of that bank of tubes, there's no real direct path to get inside that uh, unit and clean it. So what they end up doing is they end up unbolting the top of the cooling tower, taking the tube section out, throwing it away, and bringing a new section in. Uh, so that is a, a thing we try to avoid. Uh, here's a centrifugal chiller. Uh, I, I talked about earlier, you can look on the left-hand side on the ends where they have bell covers. Uh, there are no marine ends on this chiller, so you might see these as well. Uh, an issue that we see a lot with it when, when you don't have the marine ends is when people go to do a cleaning, they'll pull the non-pipe end of the unit and they'll just brush from the non-pipe end. So you really don't get to see what's going on on the other side where your influent flow and your, uh, your, your exiting flow is. So if there's debris or other material, you won't actually see that. And so that is not the best way to inspect one of these units. You need to pull the pipe end. Nope, too many. Uh, here's an example of some shell and tube heat exchangers. Uh, the top right shows a removable bundle. So this is probably shell side cooling. Uh, what this does is they can pull this bundle out. You can see that they have it on rollers. And what they do is they go in there and they hydroblast those tubes and try and remove any material off it and then roll that unit to get to the other areas as they keep cleaning. Uh, on the left-hand side, you can see the tube sheets. Uh, tubes will either be rolled or welded into tube sheets. I think on the lower right here, you can see the uh, bottom slide has, uh, the bottom picture has a rolled tube, and the upper picture on the right-hand side has uh, welded tubes. Uh, rolled tubes usually can be rolled two or three times. Over time, they'll start to maybe get some leakage around the rolled area and uh, they can actually go back in and re-roll those tubes uh, up to two more times. Uh, in the center on the bottom, you can see a, a marine end on the end of a chiller, and you can look at this unit, and uh, I don't know if you all can, can determine the number of passes or not, but I'll just tell you that there are six passes on this unit. This is one of those heat exchangers that Don talked about yesterday, and we talked about the amount of time that the water is inside the unit. Uh, on the lower left-hand portion, you can see the piping. Uh, that would be the inlet, and the water would go down and come back the bottom on the right-hand side and turn around and go in and back to the far end uh, in the upper section of that, uh, uh, the upper part of that section of the chiller. It would then cross over to the lower section on the on the upper left of the chiller, go back out and back down the other side on the upper section or the upper part of that left hand section, 
and then it would come back in on the upper right and there's a piece of pipe you might not be able to see in the picture up there and that's your uh, exiting pipe for your return. So there's a six pass heat exchanger with a marine end. Some things we try and watch for when we look at uh, uh, heat exchangers. Uh, low velocity, less than three feet per section. Per, I'm sorry, less than three feet per second on tube side cooling. Uh, we also watch out and look for shell side cooling because the velocities are a lot less and we also look for throttling. Uh, we also look for systems that can cause issues with us with very, very high process temperatures. Uh, you know, you can have uh, a, a centrifugal chiller. Maximum temperature you're going to see on the process side, on the Freon side, is 110 degrees. On an air compressor, intercoolers, you're going to see 267, 268 degrees on the uh, compressed air side. And then when you start getting into the chemical industry, you can see temperatures in excess of three or 400 degrees. So the higher the, the process temperature, uh, the more tendency we have to, to have issues with uh, the heat exchangers. We also look at the cooling water temperature. Uh, if the cooling water temperature leaving an exchanger is uh, above 120 degrees, um, we know that we have a, a heat exchanger that could be a problem actor in the future and uh, needs one that needs special attention. Uh, multiple tube passes, again, we're talking about the uh, six pass heat exchanger we talked about on the last slide. Uh, enhanced tubes. Enhanced tubes are, are interesting in that uh, some heat exchangers have tubes that have uh, enhancements, uh, fins, uh, rifling, uh, different things to help increase the efficiency of those units. Normally on the uh, tube side, there will be rifling, and then on the exterior of the tube, on the shell side of that tube, uh, they can have fins put on them, which will uh, increase the efficiency of those tubes. Uh, the issues with enhanced tubes are because of the increased surface areas, uh, because of the uh, small openings and the crevices and different things, you can have uh, places for deposition to occur. Uh, once a, an, an enhanced tube is fouled, it is almost impossible to get it fully clean again uh, because of those small areas. So that's some of the issues we see with enhanced tubes. Uh, galvanic corrosion and anodes. Uh, we look for galvanic corrosion. Some heat exchangers might have copper tubes and mild steel uh, tube sheets and tube supports. Uh, some might have titanium. Some might have stainless steel and mild steel. So all these are things that we look for. Um, anodes. Uh, a lot of our plants will put sacrificial anodes in, and these anodes are designed to corrode before the base metal of the uh, heat exchanger corrodes. Uh, so we need to make sure that those anodes are the correct anodes, they're placed correctly, and they're the correct size for the heat exchanger. Tube sheet coatings. Uh, tube sheet coatings, a lot of people, uh, they worry about corrosion of that tube sheet. 
So what they'll do is they will sandblast it or bead blast it down to like a four mil profile and then put different paints, epoxies, uh, ceramic coatings on these uh, tube sheets and uh, bell covers and marine ends to keep the steel corrosion down uh, on those units. Uh, if the coatings are done correctly, there's really not an issue. You pop open the unit, you look at it, you wipe it down with a rag and you're good to go. Uh, the issues that we have is when these coatings aren't applied correctly and you'll get some of the, of the coating peeling off. Uh, you'll end up with all the, uh, uh, the, the, the corrosive tendencies to attack in those one areas. Uh, you can also get water to start creeping back behind those coatings and lead to uh, uh, under deposit corrosion and crevice corrosion in there. So tube sheet coatings are something that need to be looked at and inspected whenever a heat exchanger is open. Uh, you also need to watch out for debris issues. As you can see from the picture on the left, uh, this uh, heat exchanger has a tremendous amount of debris. Uh, it looks like wood, uh, might be a little styrofoam in there, uh, some plastic fill, uh, just a lot of different things. So we, we look for debris issues. Uh, debris issues are one of the most common things we see when we, we look at a shell and tube heat exchanger. And they have a tendency to cause more performance issues than uh, improper water treatment. Uh, cooling water flow from the header. Uh, whenever you uh, uh, have a system, we like to see that the uh, Inlet flow coming from the header is taken off the top of the header, not the bottom of the header. This limits, this helps reduce the amount of uh, buildup of solids that end up from the header back into the units. So if they pull off the bottom of the header, that heat exchanger is probably going to have a lot more uh, dirt and garbage and junk in it than one that is uh, supplied with uh, a pipe that pulls off the top of the header. Uh, other issues that we see are flow redesigns. Uh, plants will uh, come online and they'll be running fine and then they'll say well we need to add a unit here or a heat exchanger over here for this process and they just they just grab the flow off the header sometimes wherever they want and this can cause flow issues for other unit the other units in the in the in the uh, plant and uh, lead to uh, flow starvation on some heat exchangers uh, lack of buck, uh, back flush valves. One of the issues, and we'll talk about this in, in more detail later, is uh, back flushing of heat exchangers. Uh, we like to see that the uh, heat exchangers end up uh, with this garbage in the front of it. If you have back flush valves on the units, you can reverse the flow of the water through the heat exchangers, push that material off, and send it to drain or tend it to the ground. So we'd like to see back flush valves and we'd like to see them in use and we'd like to have the customers make sure that they're they're running a back flush on a uh, on a PM program. Uh, process leaks. Process leaks are one of the ca main causes of, of corrosion and deposition in heat exchangers. You can end up with um, if it's a hydrocarbon leak you'll start seeing uh, loss of uh, heat transfer, and then you'll actually see bacterial issues developed and end up with uh, microbiological issues that can further inhibit 
uh, heat transfer. Uh, the last one here is pinch gaskets. And on those marine ends where you had the baffles to direct the flow to all those six passes, in between the marine end and the tube sheet, uh, there will be gaskets on all those baffles. And those gaskets are designed to uh, fit flush against that tube sheet and uh, not allow water to bypass from one section to another. If those gaskets get pinched or they get eroded out, uh, what happens is the water then short circuits through the heat exchanger and you end up with uh, poor performance on that heat exchanger because you're not getting the amount of water through that unit that you uh, intended to. So that's about it on the shell and tube uh, heat exchangers and how they're all set up. Uh, if anybody has any questions or comments or anything, you know, send uh, a note in the chat and uh, Joe can uh, get it to me. Uh, okay. If not, go ahead. So Jeff, you had one question and it came from Kai and he asked, can you touch on steam absorption chillers? Um, I did put a video <laughs> into the chat <laughs> on how they work and operate, but just wanted to see if there was any comment. Uh, I could go into it, but I'm actually developing a steam absorption chiller uh, training class. It's going to take about an hour. Uh, steam absorption chillers are a little different, and you got to go through a lot of the, and, and how they basically work is a, a normal cooling tower chiller, uh, say like a centrifugal chiller, you're removing uh, 15,000 BTUs per ton, and uh, you normally would have a flow rate of three gallons per minute per ton of refrigeration. A steam absorption chiller actually rejects about 30,000 BTUs because of the way uh, it's set up. It actually has steam that comes in and uh, actually vapor wa vaporizes water off from uh, a lithium bromide solution. Uh, and then that that uh, that water that's in that lithium bromide solution then ends up uh, getting pulled back into a vacuum later in the chiller and and chills down your chill water as you drop the pressure. Uh, I, I, if you'd like to, I mean, I should have that course done probably within the next two or three weeks and then Joe will set it up. Uh, a lot of these chemical plants have these type of units and we're seeing uh, some issues on these units with uh, uh, corrosion of Admiralty or Cooper nickel tubes, depending on which uh, type that these chillers have. But uh, Kai, I can go ahead and send you a copy of that uh, training class when I'm done with it also. No, that's okay. Whenever you have it scheduled, um, I'd be glad to attend that. That'd be interesting. I don't need anything ahead of time. All right, Bye. sounds good. And as I mentioned, I did put a video in there on how they work uh, from YouTube that I found. And then just real quick, you had from Gordo, boo on six-pass six heat exchangers and boo on enhanced <laughs> tubes too. So <laughs> just wanted to let you know you had those comments. Yeah, the, the six-pass heat exchangers. And, and again, and they'll talk about this on uh, – on, uh, isn't Gordo the one going to talk about six-pass – isn't he going to talk hexaval? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, so you're, you're going to talk about six-pass heat exchangers on Hexaval as well, aren't you? Yes, sir. Okay, so yeah, six-pass and enhanced tubes are, are, are an interesting breed, and uh, Gordo will go into those on the Hexaval on the six-pass, so. 
one of the other things that I saw at, at our refinery was uh, twisted tubes. It, it's the same principle as the enhanced tube. It gives you the the refinery likes it because you give you know you get more square footage with the enhanced tubes or or the twisted tubes. But what we found with the twisted tubes as they twist through there, even though you have may have like a you know uh, 0.75 OD tube, as they twist it going through there, your orifice gets even smaller. And so what we saw on those, twi on those twisted tubes, yeah, you got a lot more BTUs through them, but on the bottom sections, the, a lot of debris and crap like that would get lodged in there. So that that's another thing that I, I've successfully uh, replaced every one of the twisted tubes in Waterside. So that, that was a great day. Are they, are they twisted or are they rifled? They're twisted. Uh, send, send me some pictures on that. I'd love to see those if I'll you have it. any. Yes, sir. I'll see if I can dig it out. So, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things coming out on tubes, and he's, you know, everybody's trying to get the most performance they can. Uh, when I first started in this business, uh, a, a a yellow metal tube was 50 uh, yeah. thousandths in thickness, and uh, man, you could you could ask to clean them seven or eight times and never have a problem. And then they start chopping down, and they went to like 28 thousandths, and then they started internally and externally enhancing them. So that thinned them out a little more. And I was just on a phone, uh, well, a, uh, a Teams meeting with uh, a plant down in, in uh, Baytown, Texas, and uh, their tubes were 22 thousandths. Wow. So they keep getting them thinner and thinner. And uh, so uh, corrosion protection on those types of uh, tubes is getting to be more and more important. So. Yeah, you got a picture of it image, over there. The thing. That's what they look like right there. Um, but yeah, the if you're on a clean surface, like a processed surface, it, it, it's not as bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, and it gives you the BTUs that you want. And but on a water surface, it that they're awful. Um, or or any, any fouling surface, like in a crude unit, whatever it was, um, that they get very, very easily fouled. Okay. Well, if there's no more questions, we're going to move on to plate frame heat exchangers. I'm sure Gordo loves these too, if he's ever used those. So. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, no. Mm -mm. We all hate them. <laughs> no, so, not everybody. So the next uh, topic we're going to go to is plate frame heat exchangers. Uh, basically, what we're going to look at here is on the parts of these, we have a housing, which is the blue area on the units. Uh, inside of that, we have corrugated plates. Uh, each plate will uh, have a gasket on it on both sides. Uh, and one of the things about plate and frames are usually limited to less than 300 PSI. So with that information, we're gonna look at, you know, what are the pros and cons of using plate frame heat exchangers? And what can we do to help our customers? because these are very efficient, they're very compact. Uh, they can get them in and out uh, very easily. They can, uh, you know, if something happens to one, they can pull it apart. So they're, they're, they're starting to make uh, their presence known more and more in industrial applications. So the pros for the uh, plate frame heat exchanger is the metallurgy. Everyone I've ever seen is, is stainless steel. Uh, 
I was just on a phone conference with uh, a friend of mine in, in Russia, and they are now making uh, titanium ones, which is really, really interesting. So that's going to be, I mean, a titanium, one of those would probably weigh one-fifth of what a stainless steel uh, one will weigh. So that's going to be kind of interesting to see what, how they come out with that. Uh, they have a very small footprint. So, you know, you can put them in spots that you can't put a uh, shell and tube. Um, ease of cleaning. Uh, basically, what happens is uh, with these units is that uh, you stack all these plates in there. You compress it to a certain uh, torque setting to seal up all the gaskets and it runs. And then if it ever gets dirty, loses efficiency, they just unbolt it and all the plates slide apart and they can get in there and clean these. Uh, they're, they're very easy to modify. You can add additional plates or take out plates depending on what your need uh, is for that process. Say you 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 bumped up the capacity of, of your system, of your uh, process and, and increased your uh, throughput in pounds by 10%. Well, you can add plates to these heat exchangers and get extra capacity out of those as well. And then spares. People will keep plates, you know, spare plates uh, in their warehouse and just hold on to them uh, in case they start having some issues. They'll also keep gasket sets inside and so that they can change these out. Um, so those are the pros of the of the heat exchange. The, 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 the cons of them are the water velocity is very, very low. You're talking like half a foot per second on these. Uh, they are very prone to deposition and fouling. Uh, if you have dirty water, uh, high suspended solids, trash, anything, you will foul these up in a heartbeat. And once these get fouled up, uh, they're not like a shell and tube where you might get a little fouling on them and you can, you know, uh, acid clean it or hit it with extra dispersant. Once these channels and these uh, plate frames get blocked uh, uh, up, there's just no flow. And so it just completely eliminates the ability to clean it. Uh, you can have gasket issues. Uh, if the gaskets aren't put in correctly, if the unit isn't set up correctly, uh, they're prone to leakage and uh, and then you end up with either, you know, process fluid in your water or water in your process fluid. Uh, you can get under deposit corrosion, uh, especially under these gaskets, and then you have stress corrosion that can develop because of the fact that uh, you're taking that those plates and you're trying to put them all together just correctly and then bolt them down and torque them down to a certain torque setting to make sure the gaskets seat. And if any of those plates are out of alignment by even a little bit, you can create stress on that system. So that's basically the pros and cons of the plate frame. Uh, here you can see this is a, an exploded view of the plate frame. You can see how the uh, plates get, can be pulled apart, uh, the frame, how it's all bolted together. Uh, this is an alternating flow plate where uh, the red is, has an upflow and then the blue is on downflow. Uh, alternating, you know, Alternating the plate flow uh, provides better heat transfer and better efficiency as opposed to the same direction flow. 
here we have two plates. One of them is going to be process side and one of them is going to be water side, and I'm not sure which one it is on this plate, but you can see how the plates are set up where uh, you'll have gasketing that runs all the way around and around the supply and return headers at the top and bottom, and these gaskets uh, alternate. So like on the bottom left, you can see the gasket around the, the hole, uh, which is the header. And on the other plate on the bottom right, the gasketing is around the hole. So what that does for you is that keeps the plate separate, that keeps the process fluid separate, but it also provides areas that are possible where you can get some leaking. So this is uh, one of the downfalls of these types of units. Uh, in addition, you can get crevice corrosion, gasketing issues. Here you can see where uh, in that gasket channel, that uh, uh, we've had some under under uh, deposit corrosion where water and, and material has gotten up underneath that gasket because it wasn't sealed correctly and led to corrosion on that uh, stainless steel uh, plate. Uh, it could have been concentration of chlorides. It could have been uh, uh, different things, but you can see how that can occur. So this basically covers your plate frame heat exchangers and how they're set up. Uh, we like to see, you know, I like to have, make sure that we have some type of strainer set up in front of these uh, to avoid having uh, any solids material enter, enter into these uh, heat exchangers and block up these passages. Um, they're just notorious for fouling. They just really are. They, they have, such issues you can see how small on this previous slide how small these channels are uh, these small these channels are smaller than a pencil they're probably about a pencil lead in all these channels and trying to get the flow through all of these so they're very easy to uh, block up and then cause performance issues any questions on plate frame heat exchangers Nothing in the chat. Okay. Uh, the, these next two sets of heat exchangers are, are pretty simple design and pretty. And the, the, the spiral heat exchanger here, you might not see one of those in your career, but then again, you might. Uh, these units, uh, again, you can see from the center uh, picture, uh, they're just basically two sets of spirals inside each other. Uh, and uh, they usually have alternate, uh, you know, all the, the flow is, is not in the same direction, uh, so they get better performance. Um, they're, they're, they're quite interesting in that, uh, as you can see, you can pop open this, this door on the one on the left and get inside and see if there's any deposition or, or any things to, that need cleaning to remove, and then you can pop it back closed. Uh, same with the one on the right, it requires a little couple more bolts, but uh, same uh, principle on that where there you can service them. Uh, some of the benefits of the of the heat exchanger for the spirals, uh, it takes up one sixth the space of a uh, shell and tube heat exchanger. Uh, it has lower costs as far as pumps, valves, and piping. Uh, it 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 does not have the the back pressure that uh, uh, a shell and tube has, so it's a, it requires 75% less pumping energy. Uh, 
because of the amount of surface area you have in that small space, you get higher K values and closer approach temperatures, so they're very efficient. And because of the way that that spiral flow is working, they're self-cleaning. So those are some of the benefits of those spiral heat exchangers. Uh, some of the problems with them are is they can develop internal cracks or leaks, and if they become internal cracks or leaks, you saw how close those plates were together on those spirals. There's really no way to get in there and, and fix them. You basically have to tear it out or throw it away. Uh, spiral heat exchangers, maximum flow, about 1,500 GPM, and a maximum pressure of about 400 PSI. So uh, they're not designed for the, the really large uh, industrial capacities. These are more for, for ancillary or smaller units uh, that don't require uh, uh, huge heat exchangers. Uh, the double pipe heat exchanger, this is a very simple design. And like I said, I saw an extremely large one up at Monongahela. Uh, they're just, as they say, there's basically a pipe within a pipe. Uh, you see from the diagram here on the bottom that uh, you have uh, fluid coming in for the shell side, and that runs the shell side all the way through, and then you have fluid in the tube side. Uh, they're very solid, simple construction. They can handle very high pressures and high temperatures. Uh, the benefit about handling, handling those high temperatures and pressures is that those are free to expand and contract. They're not locked in with a, with a rigid uh, frame. And they're modular, so wherever these flanges are, say you need a little bit more cooling for your process, you can open those flanges up, add another U-section in, and then re-bolt it back down, and you have a, a larger heat exchanger. Uh, some of the... the uh, the, the problems with these units are that they are lower efficiency, so they're not as efficient as the plate frame or as the shell and tube. Um, they're harder to clean. They're very easy to clean on the tube side because you just pop the flanges off for the U-bend for the and on the pipe end, and you can run a rod right down them. But on the shell side, there's really no way to get around that internal tube and try and clean that entire area. And uh, the last item is because of all these flanges, there are higher chances of leakages. Uh, you've got, you know, all these bolts, all these flanges, all these, all this gasketing material, and you can have uh, a tendency to develop a leak over time on these. So that basically goes through everything about the types of heat exchangers that you might see uh, out there in, uh, at your facilities. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to move over to uh, the preventive maintenance side of the heat exchangers and talk about things that we can do to help our customers out to help their heat exchangers last longer. Uh, exchanger pre-cleaning. This is a the, 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 these next items are very big items and they they really need to be addressed from a water treatment standpoint and documented correctly. Um, here's an example on, on this photograph of a heat exchanger. It's a brand new heat exchanger. It either has um, oil, an oil coating in it to prevent corrosion or from the build process. Uh, you can see that it's got welded tubes. The tubes are actually welded into the tube sheet. And the big thing that you need to know from this is that these oils, these contaminants, 
can lead to corrosion uh, very quickly in these heat exchanges if not uh, pre-cleaned correctly. This is act that was actually a, um, a preservative, I think they put. They put that on uh, rifles during World War II to basically keep them from rusting as it went across the pond. I forgot well, the name yeah. of, the, um, of the material. Cos Cosmoline. Cosmoline, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, if an exchanger is built overseas and comes over on a ship, uh, it is it is coated with cosmoline, and then normally you've got to use something. In the old days, they would use diesel fuel or JP8 or something to clean it, and now we're a lot more environmentally friendly, and we don't like that stuff. So, But, yeah, I mean, all that type of material needs to be removed before it can be uh, – uh, that heat exchanger can be put into service. And – Steaming will not take it off, no. by the way. No. It must be removed. Uh, all your, back when Honda first started coming to the United States, every car that, that came over from Japan was coated in Cosmoline. So that's just another, like you talked about, rifles, heat exchangers, cars, just about anything that was coming over was coming over with Cosmoline on it. Uh, Pre-cleaning of heat exchangers. The whole idea is to remove the foreign matter, greases, oils, mill scale, dirt. Uh, we need to get that completely off of, of that unit. And, and the reason why we want to do that is you cannot form a, a uh, get uh, an inhibitory film formation on a dirty surface. So unless you get those uh, units completely clean, you're not going to be able to uh, perform that inhibitory film. Uh, you know, and those, those films only form on that clean surface. Uh, it is estimated that 50 to 70% uh, life expectancy of a, of a heat exchanger uh, can be, well, it can be reduced by 50 to 70% if a proper pre-cleaning and passivation isn't done on a heat exchanger. So when you're out there at your facilities and they're talking about putting in a new heat exchanger or building a new unit, uh, we need to make sure that we're involved with from the start and make sure that they have time and and built into their schedule, uh, their commissioning schedule for pre-treatment, pre-cleaning, and uh, uh, passivation of those units and done properly. A lot of times they'll say, okay, well, we can give you, you know, four hours. That's just not going to do it. I mean, you need to make sure they understand that, that, that uh, you know, improper uh, passivation and cleaning can reduce that heat exchanger's life by 50 to 70 percent. And a lot of times, the if it's a new unit, the, uh, the the company that's doing the building and commissioning, they're not really worried about that because they're going to be gone. So you need to make sure that when you're in your meetings with the the builder and the the eventual customer, uh, that 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 is brought up to them because they'll make sure that it's done correctly. Uh, passivation of new heat exchangers. Uh, again, the benefits are only seen on clean surfaces. Higher temperatures promote rapid film formation. So if you can have a little bit of temperature put on those uh, heat exchangers uh, during the passivation, that's better. And then we use different organic and inorganic inhibitors depending on the metallurgy. They can be phosphates, phosphonates, uh, TTA, zinc. Uh, there's a whole gambit out there of them. Uh, that uh, could be used for uh, uh, the passivation step on these uh, heat exchangers, depending on the metallurgy. 
So that covers passivation and uh, and pre-cleaning. Uh, this is one of the big things that we always talk about with our heat exchangers is the flushing procedures. Um, we talked about earlier uh, why back flush. And here are some pictures that you need to take a look at. Uh, you can see on the upper picture just a bunch of junk and garbage. Uh, the lower left picture, Joe, that's the duct tape from the Marathon plant. Right, Texas City. And how eight long years. was that in there? That was eight, that duct eight tape years. was in there eight, eight years. Uh, and then on the one here on the right is a Tyvek suit. Uh, suit, And you can uh, see that it's blocking probably 70% of the passages on that uh, section of that heat exchanger. So uh, for these heat exchangers, uh, we need to make sure that we have at least uh, a four inch back flush port or one nominal pipe size smaller. So if you have a 12 inch inlet, you probably need a 10 inch uh, back flush port. Uh, you know, we need to establish uh, the normal circulation through the headers. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we go through the procedure here that we're going to talk about. And I'm going to uh, show you here how normally that would be set up. Uh, basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to flush, make sure when you come back up, you're flushing these headers. The supply is here at the bottom, the return is at the top. Make sure you flush your headers to remove any garbage that's in your headers. Uh, this will prevent additional material from getting into your uh, heat exchangers. Uh, and then what we also, on the basis of the flushing, what we're trying to do is on this slide is we're showing removing of debris on the supply coming into the heat exchanger. So you would open the discharge valve and flush water and any debris in that uh, supply line out to drain as well. Uh, this is this this example here is going to show using uh, the back the header, the return header back pressure as our uh, flushing water. What we'll do here is uh, we'll take the back the the supply line from the header from the supply header the, the valve from the supply header and that will be shut off the drain valve will be open and water will be allowed to back flush through the heat exchanger to remove any debris uh, this is very important it helps restore cooling efficiency i was talking to one of our site managers a couple months ago they had a heat exchanger that was down like running around 300 gpm and they were concerned, the plant was concerned that we had deposited uh, material in the unit and caused issues with uh, uh, performance. And I said, I think that we need to back flush that unit. And everybody was saying it's not a back flushing issue. It's, it's, a, it's a deposition issue. Well, they back flushed the unit and the flow came back up to 1500 GPM. So back flushing is, is very, very important. Uh, another way to back flush is you can run a jumper across the uh, heat exchanger so that you can take the supply water and uh, run it back through the heat back through the heat exchanger in the reverse direction and then dump it to drain. So there are two different ways you can either use the return line back pressure or you can jumper across. If you're using the return line back pressure, you have to be concerned with the temperatures because that temperature, that return water is a lot uh, usually, you know, 10 to 25 degrees hotter than 
the supply water and you might have uh, cooling issues on your heat exchanger if you're not careful. So you just need to make sure you're, you're watching those temperatures. Um, this is an interesting little video that I somebody put in uh, had and I thought that was this is them uh, back flushing a, uh, a heat exchanger. The whole header. Oh, the whole header. Yeah, the this was my facility. I need a footnote here, uh, Joe. Haha. -ha. Go for it. <laughs> yes, you need credit for that video. <laughs> What is that? That's basically the header, um, and, and this is what I put in some of the notes. I mean, I mean, it's important to back flush it without a doubt, but like uh, over time, as these as these pipes stay stagnant for long periods of time, you get chip scale, whatever it was, it breaks loose. And so, if you don't flush it forward and flush the header out before it goes to the heat exchangers all that chip scale is going to pile up and into the um, into the inlet. So, yeah, you may be able to get up, get them out with with back flushing and and air bumping and stuff like that, but it's better off to dump a bunch of water like that to the ground and get all that stuff out of the pipe before it goes to the, to your inlet. Best case scenario is to keep the inlet blinded and open up either a, a big header like that or your backwash nozzle and flush it like that. Okay, well, thank you, because I, I didn't know where that video came. And I thought I thought it was uh, Marathon, but I wasn't sure which one it was. That was it. That was the unit that was six years old, believe it or not. Okay. And we had a we had a uh, a, a, a bobcat load of crap that came out of the pipe. <laughs> All right, I, I see that I'm running short on time, Joe, so I'm going to try and move th through this a little quicker. Uh, sacrificial anodes. Uh, the whole idea behind a sacrificial anode is that it actually corrodes before the base metal of our heat exchanger will. Uh, these heat, these sacrificial anodes are put in uh, to help control corrosion in these heat exchangers. Uh, a lot of times they'll be either zinc, uh, magnesium, or uh, uh, soft iron. Uh, here's one that's got either a zinc and magnesium anode on the left or, and then a uh, soft iron uh, one on the right. Uh, the idea is we need to make sure we use the right anode for the right application. If you don't have that, if you use the wrong anode, what ends up happening is you end up with a uh, tremendous amount of corrosion products from that anode and that ends up uh, as you can see here, it's completely coated that uh, tube sheet and parts of the tubes, so they can becoming more of a problem than uh, than the solution. They're, they're just they're just causing more and more issues with performance. Uh, inspections. We need to make sure that on a heat exchanger that you are there when the heat exchanger is opened up. Uh, you're going to be able to take photographs or the plant will take photographs for you. Hopefully, uh, if you're not allowed, uh, it allows you to see if there's microbiological fouling, uh, if there's uh, uh, silt or, or dirt or mud deposition and or a calcium carbonate or calcium phosphate deposition. Allows you to pull samples. 
and uh, determine whether or not uh, it's a program related issue or if it's a design related issue. Uh, a debris, again, you want to take photographs of that as well. The whole idea being that uh, most of your facilities, if they start having performance issues, their first comment is, what did you do to my water treatment? What did you scale me up? So you need to be there to take a look at these uh, heat exchanges when they get open. A lot of times what will happen is maintenance will pop the unit open and the people that are doing the cleaning, the hydroblasting and everything, they are right behind the maintenance people. And if you wait a couple, three or four hours, you might get back there and the heat exchanger will be completely done and they're ready to button it back up. And unless somebody took pictures, you will not know any of this occurred. You know, they might say, oh, we saw a little bit of something. Well, a little bit of something to one person is a lot of something to another. Uh, and then the, the whole thing on this is that it all needs to be documented. You need to make sure you document that in a in, in, in an inspection report. Um, the effects of all this debris, the effects of debris are building uh, blocks and they all build to the eventual problems of overheating. So you can start with loss of some flow through the tubes, uh, get some dirt, bacteria, and then depo under deposit corrosion deposits and then eventual overheating. Uh, effects of operating outside design. Uh, this is going to be very similar to what Don was talking about yesterday. Uh, what we the desired conditions for heat exchangers that we look for are less than 160 degree skin temperatures, outlet water temperatures less than 120, and the residence time of less than 20, maybe 30 seconds. This is where Don was talking about yesterday about having those extended amount of time in the heat exchangers. Uh, we also talk about avoiding over pinching of the heat uh, pinching of the uh, outflow of the heat exchangers to uh, make the uh, process uh, temperatures where you want them to be. Uh, they really need to put a thermal bypass on the process side or recirculate cooling tower water or maybe reduce the number of tower cells or cut off a fan or two. Uh, all of these things will allow that flow to still continue through that unit uh, but maybe allow the, the process to operate at the correct temperature. Uh, heat exchanger design. Again, you know, there are certain fouling allowances uh, that are designed, that should be in the design, you know, shell and tube up to about 25%, plate and frame up to about 15%. And uh, what you won't want to do is have people over designing their shell and tube, all these heat exchangers to where they're 40 or 50% over what they actually need, because then that does lead to the overcooling of the process. And then they will try and throttle and cause these other issues. Uh, we're going to talk here about pressure drop. Pressure drop is important, as Don talked about yesterday, because of the shear stress. The greater the shear stress, uh, the greater the uh, uh, ability of that tube to self-clean itself and keep uh, deposits from forming. So on a shell and tube heat exchanger, 6 to 7 PSI. On plate and frame, 10 to 15. Uh, this will allow that shear stress to, to develop, and it will keep that uh, flow rate high enough to where you don't get that laminar flow that Don was talking about in that thick laminar flow boundary layer that uh, is not as efficient at removing heat. So other issues that we're going to talk about, um, 
you know, we need to operate at design velocities because what it does is it, decre it decreases the detention time within the heat exchanger. We talked about it earlier, increases that shear stress, lowers that surface temperature, reduces that laminar flow uh, uh, boundary zone, um, and, and keeps those uh, those surfaces clean and keeps those from uh, having uh, the crystallization from occurring. So all of those are, are are very important, and that is why we are so concerned about low flow. And and you will see later in the week uh, from Gordon when he talks about the hexaval, and we start talking about flow rates through heat exchangers and the uh, hydrothermal stress coefficient, how they go hand in hand. Uh, so to keep velocity, keep exchanger velocities at design. Don't pinch. Recycle cooling water around or bypass the process fluid. Uh, those are the three keys you need to learn from that. Uh, these are just some velocity things, low velocities for plates and frames, uh, shell and tubes, uh, basically data that you, where you want your flow rates to be. Uh, we talked about uh, bypassing the process flow. Uh, this is not water, this is actually the process fluid. So if the heat exchanger is removing too much uh, heat, you can add a bypass and put an automated valve in and temperature control on the outlet process side. And that, that valve will modulate to keep that process temperature at the correct level. That is much better than throttling the heat exchanger uh, and reducing that flow. Also, you can uh, add a pump and bring some of that warm water after the heat exchanger back into the inlet supply and increase the inlet supply temperature so that uh, you're not pulling as much heat out of that heat exchanger. Uh, that is another uh, way of, of doing what we're, we're talking about. You know, the last resort is to pinch off the flow. Um, this slide here, we talk about fouling issues uh, for heat exchangers microbiological biofilms, suspended solids, inorganics, uh, process leaks, uh, corrosion. Corrosion could be due to a lot of different things. Oxygen, dissolved solids, high chlorides, high sulfates, pH. Uh, we get pitting due to under deposit corrosion. Uh, galvanic, we talk about the dissimilar metals. We talked about that earlier between the tube and the tube sheet. Uh, then we have ennobling, which is where we actually have, say you have a copper heat exchanger and that and the heat exchanger copper is being lost. And then the copper uh, uh, atoms are actually flowing through the system and then re-impinging on steel at different areas and causing uh, pitting of that steel. Uh, we have process end leakage, uh, erosion. Uh, erosion can be a, a, bit, a big issue, especially in some areas where they have high suspended solids. And then we can talk about uh, mechanical feed, uh, fatigue due to vibration. So all these things kind of interrelate to each other. And uh, uh, so, you know, just because you might have biofilm, don't think it's just combined to biofilm. It's combined to causing corrosion. Uh, we talk about the uh, water treatment triangle all the time and how the three interact. So. Uh, just think about that as you're as you're going through these systems and you're going through the systems. If you see something, say, okay, well, how does this react or how does this interrelate to maybe corrosion or or deposition or is this causing microbiological fouling, such as 
uh, uh, oil contamination or, or product contamination from the process side. So again, simple question, three page solution for you that lasted an, almost an hour and 20 minutes or 10 minutes. So questions, Joe, I hate to say I went through the back end fast, but I did. No, you have a couple of comments as far as like we were had a question about what would be used for pre-flushing and I said biocide dispersant surfactant and antifoam followed okay. by flushing and passivation. And then Dawn is saying caution and recycle of hot outlet that a scaling condition is not created that may follow this exchanger or one downstream. Yeah, Don and I talked about that yesterday. That's where if for some reason your your water temperature on your inlet side as you recycle would get up so high that you would drive your scaling index to the point where you've exceeded your uh, solubility uh, being in your program and your LSI would go too high and you could cause deposition that way. So yes, that can occur. Hey, Jeff. Yes. yes. I've got a question too. Um, one is, you know, talking back when we were talking about uh, the cosmoline and that kind of stuff. And, you know, so obviously this removing of that stuff needs to be done and prior to installation. But but what are, what's some insight on removing some of those protected uh, usually, you're, usually you're going to use a high alkaline cleaner. Yeah, so, right. So, I mean, is that is that all there is to know about that? Or I, I can offer depend. one comment. Okay, go <laughs> ahead. If I, if I can, Jeff. Yep. Is that uh, we were in a situation that had this debris and what they, all they wanted to do is their routine of high pressure cleaning because that's what the company did. And... Uh, no, notably ineffective at uh, removing all this material. Um, the, the chemical cleaning is preferred and almost, I would say, mandatory as opposed to attempting to, uh, as, as Joe alluded to earlier, steam clean or high pressure clean, just as a, a comment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just you'll... didn't know if there was a recipe. Like, I figured it was, uh, you know, an alkaline solution. But I didn't know if there was like some recommended formulation or something of something to clean cosmoline off, or uh, and I I guess maybe sometimes I use cosmoline as a general term when it's really probably shouldn't. But any of the, any of those protective coatings, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a couple of um, chemicals on the maintenance. Uh, chemical selection guide and the, the guide goes from you know acidic through neutral um, and then you know varying degrees of alkalinity there's some environment products there that are you know more environmentally acceptable I guess versus your standard caustic phosphate or TSP and, and caustic and surfactant. One of the things you'll find is is a lot of people will when you when you get uh, new heat exchangers in they'll say oh they already cleaned and took care of it and they you know it, they, they might have cleaned it and then what they'll do is they will uh, put uh, gaskets and then plywood ends on it and then purge all the air out and, and put nitrogen on them um, 
And then so the customer says, well, it's already clean. It's already taken care of. We don't need to do anything. Don't believe it. Uh, a lot of times these these units might sit out in a in a boneyard for three or four months while they're building the rest of the plant. And there's a tendency of uh, of uh, any films or, or pre cleanings that they put and did to fail during that time. And then they pop the top the ends off and all of a sudden they look at it and go, oh, well, it's dirty or it's rusted or something's not right, but there's no time in the schedule now for dealing with it. Yeah. So don't don't believe them when they say that everything's taken care of. Yeah, copy that. Thank you. It, any other any other questions, Joe? What is the recommended size of mesh of strainer sieve sieve before the recirculation pump? So, what kind of screen size and Really, it's what half inch or somewhere thereabouts. The larger you get, the more goes through. Is that true? On on the recirculating pump for the cooling tower water to yeah. go back to the front of the heat exchanger. Right. I've always I always done uh, three eighths, but that was it, 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 it. There's there's different. It all depends on what recirc pump you use as well. Right. Okay. I mean, different pumps will have recommended max sizes of material to go through them. Uh, as well, so it should be designed to get to be in conjunction with the pump. But like Joe said, half an inch, anything bigger than half an inch, definitely you don't want coming back through. Right, and but I think the biggest thing is you're trying to keep the big, you know, you have to look at what size tubes you have. If you have a lube oil cooler with quarter inch, there's nothing you're going to be able to do for those. Right. But if it's, you know, a larger size, you're trying to minimize the larger pieces of wood and everything else that gets in the tower. You're never going to completely you know, have nothing in there, but birds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, but so yeah. Megan Lowe is put in picture and it says, do you see this design? There is a design issue with this heat exchanger, low flow. So Megan, it looks like, do you have flow on the outside of the tubes on the shell side? And I, okay, maybe, so what we're seeing is a shell side, it looks like, and um, what I'm going to say there is, yes, water on the shell side is a filter, essentially is what you have, right? Any particulate, anything like that will end up on those tubes or with those tubes, and the baffles only make things worse. And then it, low flow usually is the case on a shell side, right, Jeff? Yes, and it doesn't look like this one was ever. It, it looks more like a fouling issue of some sort as opposed to a scaling issue. Right. Uh, doesn't look like it. Uh, I can't tell from that section if that's a baffle or if that's the end. I, but I, it. Uh, but I would say that you know if they could have backwashed that unit, that would it would have taken care of a lot of that material. Uh, that and I, and I actually didn't. Uh, didn't mention in this was, was air rumbling, but that is something that we that I've done in the past. But I've been trying to come up with a an air rumbling procedure, and uh, I have not found anything on the internet. I mean, I've I've always just done it by feel, and there we go. Yep. I've always done air rumbling by feel and by temperature of the process side, as opposed to. Uh, <laughs> a, a, an actual procedure because each heat exchanger is different and how they're designed and 
the sizing and the amount of air they can take and everything of that nature. But air rumbling or air bumping, uh, as well as backwashing, are, are great ways to deal with uh, uh, dirt on the on the shell side. Because of the baffles uh, on a lot of these shell side bundles, you almost have to, and we've never done it. We've talked about it. You 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 need to maybe get like a backwash nozzle on the shell itself, right? To be able to kind of get, you know, between the baffles or or, or multiple there because it, it's just getting it down. You can't move enough as the water like you need to, right? Air rumbling would probably be a good thing too, though. Yeah, you just got to make sure you have uh, proper venting on the heat exchanger, especially on the shell side, because you can build up air pockets and then reduce your efficiency. Good point. Are there any other questions? Okay, and before you all go, um, we want to thank Jeff for his presentation today. You had, I believe, at 1.41 to 42 people online today, so that's pretty good. Um, anybody else have any questions? Okay. Jeff, do you mind if I take over real quick? I want to show everyone something real, really quick. That's fine with me. Take it ahead. Okay. Thank you. Can you guys see my screen okay? Yes. All right. So what I have done is I have put a link into um, the chat window for this particular page. And I wanted to tell you all, we have a mobile app now or an app that you can use both on your phone, on this computer anywhere, or on MS Teams. Um, so what I put together is kind of a tutorial on how you would get that. But essentially what you're going to do is either come to this page and grab the link, which is, forgive me, located right here. You can also email it to yourself. And I believe I emailed everybody about this um, last week. But what you have there is you have, you know, different resources as well as the who to call list for uh, a general and applications and the commercial tools. You have a whole new section now for calculations. Um, and here's an example of, for instance, what you can do um, on the fly with a cooling water mass balance calculation all the way down to what you would have for your drawdown in milliliters per minute. And then um, just to show you how to download it to Teams, I want to show you that. Now, I already have it downloaded in Teams, so it may not actually do it for me, but I want to show you what we can do there. Let's see if I can get back. Okay, so what you're going to do is on, can you everybody see my Microsoft Teams page and on the left, the menu where I have activity, chat, and Teams and such? And if not, what you're going to look for is on the left, there are these three dots below the files and calls and all of that. You're going to click on the three dots and you have a box that will pop up and what you need to search there is IWTNA and you'll see that training app comes up. There are some other apps, but we're going to be uh, taking those out because all of the updates will be made through this green IWTNA app. You would then click on the app and add. You'll see a window that comes up to add. But here is the app itself. It will work for you in Teams. It will work for you on your desktop and in your phone. And so, as I mentioned, all you will do is click on any of these areas and it will open up the app for you. And then you have the ability to look for, here's Jeff, for instance, with his information on ammonia refrigeration or any of the others. So you can go through this app and look for contacts or other people who you can talk to. You can then press home, which will take you back to the home page for the app. 
And then again, here are your calculations and we have boiler and cooling at this time, but we will be adding some wastewater and some other general uh, calculations, but you've got drawdown, you've got other things that you can use here uh, that would be useful in everyday life, if you will, for calculations, and there'll be more coming to it down the road. So before we end, any questions there? Joe, I just had one. You, you said this is under North America. What about the global team? Is it all the same access? So everyone has access to it at this point. I built it as North America because of the contact lists. But um, I know that EMEA and others will begin to start working on something like this. Um, they're working on trying to put things together now. So it may be that um, we would have, you know, global or region, regional ones so that, again, it keeps these lists um, a little bit more, you know, confined to the actual areas. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anybody else, any questions or anything? As I mentioned, I put into the chat window the link for where you can find that page, uh, which then takes you through how to do everything that I just showed you, as well as a tutorial on how you can download it. So. Any questions, anything else? Let's see if I can stop sharing. There we go. All right, if nothing else, then I wish everybody a good day. It needs Power Apps Premium Plan. Just yes, just say yes. No problem. It's not going to hurt anything. Um, it's something that's a, gl a glitch, but you can use it in Microsoft Teams, Brandon, or you can use it um, also on your phone without any issue. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Thank you. Have a good day.